This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed. Our hour of mystery begins with murder and Mr. Malone this week. We'll hear the Paul Davis murder case from May 24th, 1947. After that, it's the epic casebook and Dead Lie. Don't have an air date for this specific episode, but it debuted in 1956, the series did, and would air into the 1980s. But first, here's Murder and Mr. Malone. What's the name of the wine that tastes so fine? Guild wine. Guild wine. Yes, guild wine. It's made for the men who grow their own grapes. That's the most important thing. I'm sure you'll agree it has what it takes to make you want to sing. Gee. presents Murder and Mr. Malone. Operator. Operator. Get me the office of John J. Malone. Mr. Malone, brought to you by Guild Wine. That's G-U-I-L-D, Guild Wine. You've read about John J. Malone in Craig Rice's best-selling mystery novel. You've seen him in her hit motion pictures. Now, for the first time, you can enjoy his baffling stories over the air as the makers of Guild Wine bring you the adventures of fiction's most famous criminal lawyer in Murder and Mr. Malone. John J. Malone, attorney and counselor at law. They say one of the qualifications of a good lawyer is a sense of humor. I wouldn't know about that. For example, I never could appreciate the humor of a certain Mr. Charles Morgan. Morgan was a big-time gambler in Chicago whose practical jokes I found a little too strong for my tastes. And on this Saturday afternoon, Morgan and a beautiful blonde model named Linda Stevens were planning one of his best in a car parked in front of the Club 86 on Chicago's south side. You understand what you're supposed to do, Linda? Well, I'm not too sure, Mr. Morgan. Oh, what's the matter with you anyway? Your agent told me you were a hep dame. Look, Mr. Morgan, I don't need a job that bad. Oh, I'm sorry, I... Linda. I didn't mean that. You see, I want to play a joke on this guy. I want to make sure it goes off the schedule. Well, the more I hear this joke, the less I like it. Well, I tell you, there's nothing to worry about. This fellow's a good friend of mine. Well, then why do something as silly as that? Just to settle a bet. He thinks he's a great little man with the ladies, and I bet him 50 bucks he was wrong. But, Mr. Morgan, you promised me 100 for this job. How can you possibly win? You don't understand. It's not the money. It's the principle of the thing. Just want to make a sucker out of Davis. Davis? Yeah, his name's Paul Davis. He's a thin little guy with red hair and pop eyes. You won't have any trouble spotting him. He owns a joint. He'll be in the corner booth. But uh, suppose your friend doesn't show any interest in me. You haven't taken a good look at yourself in the mirror lately, have you, baby? 
I'm not at all worried. When Davis sees you, he'll start baying at the moon. But at the beginning, you want me to act in something. Right. That's so he shouldn't become suspicious. Then thaw out and let him buy you a couple of drinks. And after that? Well, he probably want to take you out for the evening. You tell him first you have to make a stop at your apartment. I don't think I like that, Mr. Morgan. What's that or not like? Perfectly on the up and up. When you get to your place, I'll be waiting for you. And that's where you're going to tell Mr. Davis it's just a joke? Yeah. I can hardly wait to see him when he learns it's a gay. Why, I'll bet he'll practically die laughing. Anyway, Linda. Oh, it's just the next floor, Mr. Davis. Oh, I'll cut it out. You, you promised you were going to call me Paul. I'm sorry. Paul, do you know a man named... A man named who? Oh, forget it. <laughs> you know, I don't get you, Linda. When I first saw you in the club, I immediately said to myself, there's a dame with class. I was surprised when you gave me a thumb Well, I... I don't often do things like that. It was an impulse, eh? Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, I understand. I get them all the time. Huh? Where are we going now? Oh, it's this apartment right here. Oh, hey, hey, let me help you. No, it's all right, Thames. I can manage. Well, come in. <laughs> Thanks. Hey. Nice layout you got here, Linda. <laughs> I, uh... I think I'm going to like this. I wouldn't bet on that, Davis. Uh, Morgan. Oh, then you do know each other. You dirty little double-crosser. Oh, no. He told me it was a joke. Well, the joke's over now, honey, so you can beat it. Now, see here, Mr. Morgan. I said beat it. If you're a smart girl, you keep your trap closed. Now, go on. Listen, Morgan. Shut up. I don't want any conversation with you, Davis. Just want my dough. What dough? Don't Welsh. Sixty grand, yummy. Oh, Oh, that. What'd you think I was talking about? Well, you, you see, I'm kind of low, Morgan. I, I've been running in tough luck lately. Uh, from now on, it's going to get worse. You know, all the boys are laughing at me for letting you hang me up. Man in my position can't afford that, Davis. Might give other people ideas. Uh, uh, look, Morgan, I suppose I pay you a little at a time. What do you call a little? I can give you a ten grand now, and the balance... Keep like... your hands down. I was just going to get my wallet. You got that dough on you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's have it. Oh, sure, sure. I, I was going to give it to you all the time. All right, Morgan, get him up. Put away that gun, Davis. Thank your age. <laughs> well, Mr. Morgan, who's the joke on now? I guess it's me. And you're not kidding. That's okay, Davis. I'll see you again. Now lay your odds. Next time you won't be this lucky. <laughs> Because you'll enjoy it. After Morgan goes to all that trouble, Davis pulls a gun on him and leaves him with his tongue hanging out. That's very amusing, Hudson. What happened after that? Oh, Morgan started looking for him again. What do you think will happen if he finds him this time? The same thing, Mr. Lyons. You don't believe Morgan will kill him? Yeah. Morgan's all talk. You think so? I know so. I wouldn't last this long as a private dick if I wasn't a good judge of character. Take it from me, Mr. Lyons. 
It's all a bluff. That's too bad, Hudson. It would be worth a lot of money to me if it weren't. Oh? How much is, uh, is a lot of money? What's the difference? You're not interested. Try me. You're right, you're right. At that price, I'm not interested. It isn't worth more. Everybody knows that Morgan has threatened Davis. You're on absolutely no risk. Uh, what have you, uh, what have you got against Davis anyway? That is none of your business. Either you want the job or you don't. Well, as long as you put it on that basis, Mr. Lyons, let me think it over. around the joint asking for me? Several gentlemen. What'd you tell them? That I hadn't heard from you all day. Oh, good, good. Uh, Is Norma there? Who? My wife. No, Mrs. Davis has not been in all evening. Well, uh, once she gets there, tell her that... Hey, cut that out. What's the trouble, Mr. Davis? Uh, Some characters in a hurry to use the phone. Hold it a second, Victor, till I take care of this pest. Yes. Listen, you, how would you like a good punch in the nose, eh? to Murder and Mr. Malone. A presentation of Guild Wine. Ask any wine expert and he'll tell you this. No wine can be better than the grapes that go into it. And that's where Guild California Wine comes in. Guild Wine always starts from good grapes. Because Guild Wine is made by the men who grow their own grapes. After all, when a man grows grapes, knowing they're to be used in his own wine, isn't he likely to give them more care than the grower who sells his crop on the open market? It is more than 630 of these men, all growing grapes for their own wine, to be made in the guild wine cellars they all own together, who form the cooperative Wine Growers Guild. If you'd like to try their wine, ask for Guild Wine. It's made by the men who grow their own grapes. That's G-U-I-L-D, Guild Wine. Look for the big red man on the label. And now back to Guild Wine's presentation of Murder and Mr. Malone. Well, as you probably guessed, Paul Davis never did complete that phone call. Thirty-five minutes later, he was on a slab in the morgue, and the cops in Chicago were out looking for Charles Morgan. But apparently, they weren't looking in the right places, for when I came home that afternoon, I found my door unlocked. No sooner had I opened it than I was challenged with... That's you, Malone. What the devil? Shut the door. Now, listen, Morgan. Shut it. Just keep your hands right where they are. What are you doing here? I'm hot. I haven't you heard. That still doesn't answer my question. I don't see why not. I'm wanted for murder. You're the best lawyer in Chicago. Doesn't that add up? Not to my liking, Morgan. You better get somebody else. Listen, Malone. Maybe I haven't handled it right, but I didn't kill Davis. Now, why don't you tell that to the police? You don't think for a minute they believe me. Suppose I told you that I don't either. Listen, Malone. I know you don't like me, but give me credit for a little intelligence. I was going to knock off Davis, but I shoot my mouth off all over town. So? I'll tell you I didn't kill him. And who did? 
I've no idea. Okay, Morgan, I'll see what I can do for you. But first, I want you to surrender to the cops. Oh, no. And it's no deal. Now, wait a minute, Malone. I... I'll make you a proposition. I'm not interested. Oh, for Pete's sake, give me a chance, will you? Thought a man is presumed innocent until he's found guilty. And you lawyers just say that because it sounds good. Well, we have I'm convinced with any luck you can clean this up in a couple of hours. If you haven't by then, I'll give myself up. What do you do in the meantime? Stay right here. Now, what's to prevent me from walking out and calling the police? Nothing. Oh, you, uh, just trust me, huh? That's right. Well, this is against my better judgment, Morgan. But you got yourself a lawyer. Yes? Mrs. Norma Davis? That's right. My name is John J. Malone. I'm sorry to bother you at a time like this, but I'd like to ask you some questions about your husband. I've told the police everything I know. I'm uh, working on a different angle. Come in. Thank you. Now, what is it you want to know? Have you any ideas who might have killed your husband? Yes. Charles Morgan. I mean, besides Morgan. No. Paul didn't have an enemy in the world. Well, you know, that's not true, Mrs. Davis. Your husband wasn't exactly the most popular citizen in Chicago. How dare you say that to well, me? I, I wouldn't met... have you talk that way about him. I'm tired of these insinuations. What do you know of the kind of man Paul was? I'm sorry. Oh, you're sorry. Go on and get out. Mrs. Davis. I don't want to I hear have... any more about it. Leave me alone. Permit me to congratulate you, Norma. That was a marvelous performance. Thank you, Raymond. You think I convinced Mr. Malone that I was a heartbroken widow? How could you help it when you practically convinced me? Come here, darling. Let me console you. Just a second. Yeah? I'm looking for a guy named Hudson. Well, look no further, Mr. Morgan. You Hudson? That's right. One of my friends told me you wanted to see me. He told you right. Care for a drink? Yeah, I could stand one. Yeah, help yourself. The bar's in the corner. Uh, pour me one while you're at it. Oh, huh? You're in a bad spot, Morgan. You bring me up here to tell me that? Yeah. You see, I know who killed Paul Davis. What? You heard me. That one mine? Yeah. How, uh, how you fix for cash? What do you mean? I got a lot of information to sell, and it's going to the highest bidder. You mean you can clear me? I'm not doing any more talking until I see the color of, uh, the color of your dough. How do I know you got merchandise? Oh, I'll give you a sample. Did you know that Davis's wife was two-timing him? What's home? <laughs> That's, uh, that's all you get for free. But, uh, you can use that kind of stuff, can't you? Listen, Hudson, I want you to talk to Malone. Who? John Jay, he's representing me. Are you kidding? No. You talk to him? Oh, sure. Providing I can make a buck. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. Now, I'm going back to Malone's apartment. I want you to call him there in about 45 minutes. You tell him what you told me about Mrs. Davis. Oh, no good, no good. Get the dough up first. Now, look, Hudson, I only got a grand on me. I'll give you another four the next time I see you. Okay, Morgan. You got yourself a deal. 
Morgan? Morgan! Great. Yes, sir? Vincent, this is Mr. Malone. There was a man waiting in my apartment. By any chance... Never mind. Come in. Hello, Malone. I was just asking for you, Morgan. Where the devil have you been? Oh, that tells me a lot. I thought you agreed to stay right here. I know, but I had to see somebody. Who? Suppose you tell me what you found out first. Yeah, not very much. Every lead I explored came back to you. Did you see Mrs. Davis? Yeah, just for a few minutes. What'd you think of her? She seemed all broken up over her husband's murder. She was kidding you, Malone. It makes you think so. Because I've been doing a little checking up on my own. She's been holding hands with some guy who wasn't her husband. Where did you get that from? Private dick named Joe Hudson. Oh, that lion. I thief. don't care what he is, Malone. He's got the evidence to clear me. Who did he say killed Davis? He wouldn't tell me. But I made him promise to talk to you. Should be calling you any minute. Morgan, I wouldn't trust that guy in a stack of Bibles. What did you give him? Give? Yeah, a guy like Hudson doesn't talk for free. What did you promise him? Five grand. Well, you better save your money. I tell you, you can clear me, Malone. That's probably him now. Uh, hello. That you, Malone? Yeah, that's right, Hudson. I take it that you've talked to Morgan. Yeah. Well, what do you think? What I think is unimportant. Morgan tells me you can clear him. Sure, for a price. Oh, well, I'm not interested. Well, you got to talk to him, Malone. I don't like it, Morgan. Neither do I, but if this guy can save Well, me. make up your minds, boys. Okay, Hudson. We'll be over in an hour. <laughs> Must be down the hall. No, no, here it is. I want you to let me handle Hudson Morgan and keep your mouth shut. You're the doctor. What's keeping? I don't know. Maybe one hour. Oh, I doubt that. How can you tell? Take a peek at that keyhole. Can't see a thing. Yeah, because the key's still in the lock. That means Hudson's got to be in there. Hey, Hudson, open up. Hudson! All right, Morgan, give me a hand. What are you going to do? Break it down. Shouldn't take too much effort either. Let's go. One more should do it. Hudson! Hudson! Where the devil is that light switch? Oh, he's somewhere around the door. Watch yourself, Morgan. Wait till I strike a match. I got it. There we are. Malone! Ah, yeah. Is he dead? He's either that or asleep. And with that knife in his back, what do you think? You are listening to Murder and Mr. Malone. A presentation of Guild Wine. If you're planning a dessert bridge party, you want to serve something that, one, goes with sweets. Two, has a luscious flavor, and three, appeals especially to women. Well, that something is Guild California Muscatel. For Guild Muscatel, one, tastes grand with all cookies, cakes, pies, and other sweets. Two, has the fruity flavor and aroma of the Muscat grape. And three, is such a favorite with women, it's known as the wine women like most. So, there you have it. Guild Muscatel. The perfect wine for a dessert bridge. Beautiful, golden-hued, crushed from plump grapes that are grown right on the Guild members' own vineyards in California's sunny San Joaquin Valley. Remember, that's Guild Muscatel. G-U-I-L-D. Look for the big red man on the label. 
And now back to Guildwine's presentation of Murder and Mr. Malone. Twenty minutes after we found the body of Joe Hudson, Lieutenant McGraw of Cook County Homicide arrived. You should have seen his face light up when he spied Morgan. He acted like a man who was prospecting for silver and found gold. It was a nice piece of work, Malone, a very nice piece of work. All right, Morgan, let's go. Hold it, Lieutenant. He's not the reason I called you. No, I know, but I'm not complaining. Told you not to call him, Malone. I'm beginning to think you're right, Morgan. For the same nickel, I could have phoned somebody with brains. What kind of a crack's that? Well, in case you haven't noticed, Lieutenant, there's a body lying on that sofa. Yeah, it'll keep. But as long as you raise the point, why did you kill him, Morgan? Are you crazy? I just got here with Malone. Don't hand me that. It's the truth, McGraw. So you're going to be his alibi. Yes, and you better listen unless you want to look like a jerk and we go to trial. Oh, yes. How long would you say Hudson was dead? Not too long. The body's still warm. Could have been anywhere from 15 minutes to three quarters of an hour. Well, that lets Morgan up. But I don't see how. Because he was with me every minute from the time I got Hudson's call to the time we broke down the door. The whole business took at least an hour. Your word's not good enough, Malone. Okay, if you don't believe me, you can check with the switchboard at my place in the dorm and downstairs. Yeah, I'll do that. If that's not enough, I'll dig up the hacky who drove us over. Well, that still doesn't mean Morgan couldn't have killed Davis. Oh, use your head, Lieutenant. You know both these murders were committed by the same party. Hudson knew who it was. That's why he was killed. I still say it was Morgan. Are you crazy? Hudson was going to clear me. Keep quiet, Morgan. All right, Lieutenant. I'll advise him to confess if you can show me one thing. What's that? How did he get in here? You can see the only door was locked from the inside. So what? He could have used the window. Oh, yeah? Well, take a look. Bars on it. That's right, and nobody but a midget could fit through the open. Then there must be another door. Forget it, there isn't. Well, then it was a physical impossibility for anybody to have killed Hudson. Yet it was done. How? I can't tell you, but maybe I can take you to the little lady who can. All right, now listen, Malone. If the DA ever finds out I let Morgan go, he'll have my... Wait a minute. Isn't this the house where Paul Davis lived? That's right, Lieutenant. Well, you can't bother his wife now. Why not? Because her husband was just murdered. Oh. Well, she may surprise you with what she knows about it. Morgan told me she was being romanced by some character. Who's that? I don't know. Apparently neither did Davis. Yes, me, McGraw. I have her. Yes? Hello, Mrs. Davis. Remember me? Uh, not too pleasantly. Oh, may we come in? I'm sorry, Mr. Malone. I'm busy. This gentleman would like to ask you a couple of questions. This gentleman means nothing in my own life. You never can tell. He's a lieutenant in the Cook County Police. Oh. Well, it... it just that the house is in such a mess. Well, we uh, promise not to stare. Who was it, Norma? Norma! I, uh... I think you're being paged, baby. It's, uh... It's nothing, Raymond. Uh, for a moment, darling, I was... Uh... Hello, Lyons. Malone. Lieutenant... I can explain everything. Sure you can, but suppose we do it downtown, huh? Downtown? It's customary, Mrs. Davis, when the police are questioning suspects. But we've done absolutely nothing. Nothing but murder your husband and a man named Joe Hudson. That's a lie. Do you deny that you and Lyons were busy in the romance department behind your husband's back? Yes. And what's Lyons doing here now? He's just helping me. Like he helped you murder Joe Hudson? No. Just a moment, Mr. Malone. I thought this gentleman was the officer of the law. Yeah, you're right, Lyons. But if you think my questions are going to be any less embarrassing, you're in for a bad shock. Joe Hudson was murdered at 10.45 tonight. Now, where were you at that time? With Norma, here. That's right. Oh, now, that's what I call a wonderful alibi, Lieutenant. 
Too bad there wasn't anyone else around to substantiate. Oh, but there was, Mr. Malone. A justice of the peace in Cicero. I think he may remember us. Why should he? Because I gave him a hundred dollars to perform the marriage ceremony that made Norma here Mrs. Lyon. It doesn't make sense, McGraw. Even... Hey, you watch where you're driving. I tell you, there's something screwy about that marriage. You saw the license. Doesn't it strike you as strange that within 12 hours after a husband is murdered, Mrs. Davis marries another man? Of course it does, but there's no law against it. As an attorney, you ought to know that better than anybody else. Yeah, but an alibi like that must have a hole in it. Yeah, well, you show me where. And after you do that, show me how either Mrs. Davis or Lyons could have murdered Hudson. If it was a physical impossibility for Morgan to kill him, it applies to them, too. Hold everything. What's the matter? Oh, what a chump I've been. Yeah, well, they say confession's good for the soul. I tell you, I got the answer to all of it, Lieutenant. On the level, Malone? Yeah, I know who killed Hudson. And with the help of Morgan, I'm going to prove it. I don't see what you're driving at, Malone. I don't know anything about Mrs. Davis except what I told you before. Well, how did you discover she was seeing Lyon? I didn't know it was Lyon. All Hudson told me was with some man. Uh -huh. How well did you know Hudson? I met him for the first time today. He got in touch with one of my friends and said he wanted to see me. Oh, well, that uh, puts us right back where we started. Oh, look, why don't we drop the whole business, Malone? Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Sure. Cops know now I couldn't have killed Hudson. That's where you're wrong, Morgan. You mean they still... No, no, but I do. What are you babbling about? I know how you managed it. Do you? Yeah, it was pretty clever. I can't blame myself for not seeing it sooner. No wonder you insisted I go and see Hudson. Still waiting to hear you explain how I killed him. I'm saving that for the cops. Don't kid yourself, Malone. You've done all the talking you've known. Oh, put away that gun, Morgan. You don't think I'd be fool enough to come up here alone? Funny, I don't see anybody around. You're not looking in the right place. Get down, Malone. I'm warning you, Morgan. You better throw your gun in the middle of the room. You want it, Lieutenant? Watch it, Malone. He may be acting. Well... That hole in his forehead, Lieutenant, it doesn't call for much ability. You can drop me off at the corner, Lieutenant. Well, it's, uh, Ben Grant. Hold it, Mr. Malone. Malone, aren't you forgetting something? I got a report to make. Well, who's stopping? You are. Well, you know that Morgan killed David. Oh, sure. I was the first one to say so. Yeah. <laughs> You should have stuck to your gun. Well, when you tossed in all that razzle-dazzle about Hudson's murder, you kind of threw me. I don't feel too badly, Lieutenant. I was right with you. Of course, I'm reconstructing now, but this is what must have happened. Lyons tried to hire Hudson to bump Davis. Hudson said he'd think it over. When Davis was killed, Hudson knew immediately that if he didn't do it, Morgan must have. Well, I don't see how that follows. It could have been Lyons. Oh, no. If Lyons were willing to do the job, why did he approach Hudson in the first place? Oh, no. It had to be Morgan. When Hudson realized that, he tried to shake down Morgan. He even told Morgan if the price were right, he might be induced to frame Davis's wife. So Morgan played along with him, asked him to get in touch with me. Mm -hmm. Now we're coming to the part I want to hear. Well, when Morgan went to meet Hudson, he knew it would be the first of many such meetings unless he took steps. So he uh, put the mickey into Hudson's drink. Well, why didn't he kill him then and there and be done with it, huh? Well, because he needed an alibi. And I was it. Well, I don't get it. It's uh, pretty simple. He needed someone with him while he murdered Hudson. Why? Yeah. 
Remember you said it was a physical impossibility for anyone to get into that room and kill Hudson before Morgan and I broke down the door? Yeah, I remember that. Well, you hit the nail right on the head. It was a physical impossibility. So that means Hudson was killed while I was in the room. All right. Now let me get this straight, Malone. You mean while you were hunting for that light switch? Morgan was hunting for a place to plant his knife. Wasn't he taking quite a chance there? How? Hudson was drugged. He couldn't make an outcry. A knife doesn't make any noise at all. Yeah. Well, that'll learn you. Now, the next time I say something, you'll listen. I told you Morgan was the killer all along, didn't I? Yeah, well, you'll have to forgive me, Lieutenant. I, uh, I've been hearing so many radio shows, I forgot it wasn't unconstitutional for a cop to be right. <laughs> Let's hope this establishes some sort of a precedent. protection money. He believed in freedom of enterprise. He learned the hard way that murder is a bad business. I'll fill you in on the details next week, so why not pick me up at my office at the same time? I'll be waiting for you. Good night. Frank Lovejoy was starred as John J. Malone and appeared through the courtesy of Story Production. Our program is directed by Bill Russo with music by Johnny Duffy. Murder and Mr. Malone is produced by Bernard L. Schubert. And now this is Art Gilmore inviting you to tune in next week. The events and characters depicted in this story were entirely fictional. Any resemblance to actual places or people, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. Murder and Mr. Malone has come to you from Hollywood and is presented by the Wine Growers Guild of Lodi, California. Yes, the name of the wine that tastes so fine is Guild wine. Guild wine. Yes, guild wine. It's made for the men who go to home, that's the most important thing. I'm sure you'll agree it has what it takes to make you want to play. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. The makers of Epic Pure Sunflower Oil, Purine and Pret Cooking Fat, Yum Yum Peanut Butter, Maple Margarine, and Niblet's Cheese Twists present the Epic Casebook. In which Inspector Carr investigates. Newspapers and newspaper men have always had a fascination for me, as no doubt you've long since gathered. Tonight's dramatized version of the investigation into the murder of Paul Blake brings back to mind one of the most courageous journalists I've ever met. Paul was not only fearless in his literary craft, he displayed an honesty and an integrity that won him the respect and affection of all his colleagues. But more than this, he was a brilliant painter of words able to instill into the mind's eye of his readers vivid images of the scenes as he saw them, to describe the characters involved with a clear-sighted brilliance few could match. I've always maintained that there's far too much confusion between the press barons, 
those who control the purse strings and whose main concern is profit, and press men like Paul Blake, dedicated to their craft. I remember when Paul resigned from one newspaper because of a disagreement with the proprietor's policy. Said Paul, the paper will surely sicken and die. It suffers from incipient thrombosis, inhibited circulation caused by a lot of clots. Well, that was Paul. A great loss to Fleet Street and his friends. Let me tell you about it. I call my story Dead Lie. overjoyed watching the Kent County Constabulary try to solve Paul's death and waiting eight days before they sought the assistance of Scotland Yard. Operations here, Inspector. Paul Blake, murder case, sir. Well, the Kent police come through at last? Yes, sir. They were quite frank about it, sir. CIDs say that they thought they'd keep the investigation on their own ground as the victim was such a well-known journalist, sir. Say now they're sorry. They need our help after all. Inspector Westford. Oh, Inspector Westford, eh? I know him. Very good man. Wish he'd asked for our help sooner. All right, I'll just get through to Mason. Tell them that I should be over as soon as I can. Very good, sir. Well, while you're at it, tell Transport Control I want a car and a driver. Nice to see you again, Carr. I suppose you're not exactly pleased that we waited so long before calling in the yard. Well, not really. Must have been a very good reason for someone with your experience to throw out the sponge. Uh, the press have been on my heels. Oh, by the way, eh? Uh, how much do you know of the case? Well, I've got the bare facts from the ex-branch. Paul Blake was a friend. Let's start from the beginning, shall we? Right. At exactly three minutes past two on the morning of April the 6th, the local operator answered the signal that a subscriber required his services. It proved to be Blake. Number, please. Police, quickly. Police? What number are you speaking from? No, don't waste time with silly questions. Hurry! This is Paul Blake of the Gazette. Someone is trying to... Hello? Hello, Mr. Blake? Hello? Oh, dear. Marston Police. Constable Fulton uh, speaking. Th this is the telephone exchange. Something peculiar going on at the Marston Country Club. And Mr. Blake asked we put through to you, and, and just then there was a loud explosion, like an, a, a loud noise. I, I think you better look into it. Explosion, Mr. Blake, a writer. All right, I'll look into it. I see him. Did he? Yes. Constable Fulton found the club in darkness except for one room. The room that contained the body of your friend. I'll ask the background. I don't mind telling you, the case is an absolute swine. We whittled down the list of suspects to uh, half a dozen people, and every one of them has a cast iron alibi. Oh, here's the dossier. The dossier contained a detailed analysis of the case. Put in a nutshell, it was this. At 1.30 that night, Paul Blake was very much alive, talking to five friends who were members of the club. The staff and everyone else had gone home. The group of six had a final nightcap at the bar and left, with Blake going to one of the residential cottages where he was spending the weekend. No one saw or heard him again, except the operator of the telephone exchange, who registered his call from the club and could swear that the explosion and the frantic pleas for help came at exactly three minutes past two. As I glanced through the statements made by those involved, it was clear that Westford was not exaggerating. Each seemed to have a cast-iron alibi. Oh, looks as though I'll have to pray for a miracle to solve this one. Hope you'll do. Every man at Fleet Street's after our scalps. Mm. Unless something happens soon, there's going to be questioning the house. Articles on the inefficient police force, that sort of thing. Oh, we'll try. Yeah, I don't have to tell you why I've uh, given instructions, you are to receive every cooperation. Thanks. Looks as though I'm going to need it. 
I think I'll have a word with the woman on the exchange. I understand you're the lady who was on duty at the Marston telephone exchange when the call came through. That's right, sir. Now, in your statement, you said that the call came through at three minutes past two in the morning. That's so, Inspector. Exactly, three minutes past two? Yes, sir. Why are you so sure? Well, sir, every call that comes through is automatically recorded, as far as the time's concerned. Uh, besides which, I, I looked up at the big electric clock there. That was the time, all right. What's more, I immediately got through to the council of the police station. You can ask him. Well, I'll take your word for it. How far am I from Dr. Ogden? <laughs> Dr. Wilfred Ogden was the first name on Inspector Westford's list of suspects. He looked every inch the fashion of all prosperous country doctor, yet despite an attempted air of self-assurance, it was apparent that the medical gentleman was distinctly uneasy. Uh, you were given a chance to peruse the statement you made to Inspector Westford? Of course I was. Why do you ask, Inspector? Are you sure it's correct in every detail, Doctor? Sure. Of course I'm sure. Well, I'm sorry to ask you the sort of questions you've already answered, but that's the way I work. Now, Doctor, I understand that Paul Blake was a friend of yours. Yes. Yes, uh, my wife and I met him through the club. Paul came down for weekends. I see. I believe you and your wife were two of the last to see Paul alive. Yes, that's right, Chief Inspector. My wife's American. As you know, Paul has visited the States many times. They were reminiscing. It was difficult to tear her away. Well, your wife knew Paul in the States, did she? Yes, knew each other quite well. In fact, uh, when I discovered that, I was rather jealous. No, 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 just a minute, Inspector. You, you, you don't Please, think Doctor, you... don't jump to conclusions. Don't you see? There were five of you who were around the bar when all others had gone. They must be on the list of suspects, however vague. I suppose so. Well, uh, you're going to find out sooner or later. Perhaps uh, Westford knows it already. I... Uh, uh, wasn't strictly truthful when I said that Blake was a friend of mine. In fact, I rather disliked him. I met my wife whilst I was attending a medical congress in the States. It's a little dull for her here, so I've tolerated Blake. She liked him. I've had one or two rather violent scenes. His articles concerning my property companies. Yes, we know about that. No, Doctor, Paul was shot with his own gun, a Wesson 3.8. You were able to identify the weapon, weren't you? Yes, we all knew he kept a pistol and he stayed in one of the guest cottages. So it would not have been difficult for someone to creep in and steal it? I suppose not. But I didn't, and neither did Elizabeth. Now, you were called to the scene at approximately twelve minutes past two. Yes, yes. We had just retired for the night when Constable Fulton knocked on the door. He said that Paul Blake was dead, that he'd been shot. I slipped a dressing gown on over my pyjamas and rushed next door to the club. Now, your house is next door to the country club, hmm? Yes, yes. That's why the constable thought it would be quicker to come and fetch me than telephone. I see. Will you describe what happened when you got there? I, I've already given... Yes, a... yes, I know you've already given a statement, but please, bear with me. Well, uh, I rushed next door. Uh, the place was in darkness except for a light in Paul's bunker. It wasn't a pleasant sight. He was sprawled on the floor. There was a terrible wound in the back of his head. A pistol was lying some two or three feet away. The telephone was off its socket and dangling down. In such cases, it's impossible to determine the exact time of death. He could have been killed at any time within the hour. Well, fortunately, the telephone operator heard the shot. Yes, of course. It must have been pretty terrifying. There were distinct powder marks from the shot around the mouthpiece. You realize that whoever killed him didn't do so for motives of robbery. Nothing was taken. When I saw all those pound notes and the watch on his dressing table... 
It sent a chill to me. I knew that our pleasant life at Marston was going to be disrupted with some ghastly scandal. You realize that going through my mind at this moment is the possibility that your wife killed him for some reason or other, and you could be swearing an alibi for her. What nonsense, Inspector. My wife liked him, I tell you. Still, I'm thankful that we've got a cast-iron alibi. That's what Westford called it, but I wonder if it's true. Doctor, I'm beginning to see light. Tell me what happened when the six of you had a final nightcap just before your departure. Well, we... Uh, just a moment. Who's the we? Well, uh, there was Paul, of course. Terence and Margaret Armitage. Jack Fielding and us. Let me see. Terence Armitage, mm -hmm. club member. And the manager of the club, Jack Fielding. Huh? Go on. Well, we'd uh, got into the habit of staying behind on Saturday nights and chin-wagging when everybody had gone home. It got a bit late. And I had one or two patients to see the following day. <laughs> I see the glasses are getting rather low. Come on, Jack, you make a how club manager. Nick Brown's on me. You can't help me if the staff's gone home. You'll have to be the last one. It's oh. five and twenty past one. I've got patience to see in a few hours. Oh, now, now, don't be such an old yeah, pussyfoot. Yeah. You're not calling on Mrs. Wagstaff until ten. Hey, Paul, huh? whatever happened to that character who used to run the press club in Chicago? What a ball of fire he was. Oh, yeah. Took to drink and pension oh. off. Last heard of, he was beachcombing somewhere on the West Coast. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny you should ask about him. I, I forgot yes. his existence until last week when I pounded his name out on my typewriter. Hey? Oh, I saw a great deal of him when I was running our agency's bureau in Chicago. I was writing a paragraph on the riot. Called riot. writing a book. Didn't you know? Uh-huh. His life story and brother has he got a story to tell. <laughs> Are you an authority on Paul Blake's life history? Well, maybe not an authority in his life history, but I, I reckon I made his life a little colorful for a plus. few months. <laughs> when you say Paul. Oh, don't you think it's, um, it's time you all went bye-bye? You mentioned my wife in your oh. book, Blake, and you'll regret it. Oh, dear. I think you're right. The party's getting rough. Come on, outraged husband. I'm afraid my wife was right. I did act like an outraged husband. I'd uh, had rather a lot to drink. I know that my wife has never been unfaithful to me. I've been jealous of the way she always looked up to Paul Blake and admired him, always uh, setting him up as a paragon of virtue. I know he was a fine writer and all that. More than a fine writer, Doctor, a fine human being. I can't pretend to have known him as well as I would like to. I know, I know. I... Don't think I'm not sorry he's dead, I am. I know I get neurotic at times when my wife keeps mentioning the name Blake, but I'm sorry he's dead, really I am. I told you the rather drunken exchange of words because... Because you know that it'll come out anyway. But if your alibi is as watertight as all that, you have no need to worry. Have you? Watertight alibi or not, Dr. Ogden was the epitome of the nervous, worried object of police investigation particularly when he saw me remove a press cutting from my notebook. I see that Paul Blake wrote a piece in the Weekly Chronicle concerning your property developments in this part of the world. Let me read it to you. In his um, country diary, he writes, It should be a matter of concern that the few relatively unscathed parts of our countryside are being eroded, not only by cold-eyed, thin-lipped property developers working by remote control from some plush office in the city, but by professional people whom one would have thought were impervious to the get-rich-quick-at-all-costs bug. Or should I use the word microbe, since the sentiments stem from a leading medical practitioner residing at Marston, a delightful little village nestling at the foot of the Cotswolds, where I spend many a weekend. This leading doctor first came into commercial prominence by acquiring land to build a clinic. So far, so good. 
that now he is seeking from the county council purchasing rights for the erection of flats and offices that will turn Marston into a... Yet another ugly... Well, there's no need to go on, is there, Doctor? <clears throat> I understand that because of this article, certain of your friends on the county council took fright. They resigned from your development company and their planning committee threw out your application. It must have been a terrible financial blow for you, Doctor. I didn't kill him. And what is more, Inspector Whisper tells that me... That you were seen to enter your house about five minutes before the telephone operator heard the shot being fired. You forget one thing, Chief Inspector. My wife was seen too. Fair enough, Doctor. Besides, if I'd have killed Paul, would I have pointed to the powder marks around the mouthpiece of the telephone? Could be a subtle way to underline your innocence, except for one what thing. What do you mean by that? You reported, after examining the body, there were no powder marks around the bullet wound. Well, there weren't. Look, Chief Inspector. All right, all right. I won't detain you further. And as your friend the inspector says, you do seem to have a watertight alibi. For obvious reasons, the police suspect a husband who would swear that his wife was with him when she is suspected of perpetrating a crime elsewhere, or a wife who supplies an alibi for her husband. But in this case, there was a third person to swear that he saw a doctor and Mrs. Ogden enter their home at a time which made it impossible for them to have been the culprits. Was it the perfect alibi screening a diabolically cleverly planned act of murder? My next call was on the club manager, Mr. Jack Fielding, an almost stage caricature of the ex-guards officer reduced to having to run a country club. Shocking, old boy. Absolutely shocking. Paul used to calm down every weekend he could spare. That uh, cottage he lived in was kept specially for him. Well, how many weekend cottages are there in the club grounds? Four, but no one uses them at this time of year. In fact, it's only our local members who use the club at all in the winter. Paul Blake came down because he said he liked the peace and quiet. Right, you, I don't think that was the only reason. Why do you say that? Well, a manager of a club must learn not to gossip, but um, Elizabeth Ogden was simply bonkers over him, you know. Why, even on the night the poor chap was shot, there was a bit of a, a contretemps, I would say. My you, Chief Inspector. Wait till you meet her. Gorgeous hunk of sex, that's one. I understand you were all in the clubhouse. You, the Ogdens, the Armitages, and Mr. Blake. Everyone else had gone home? Yes, that's right. And this cottage you occupy is about, oh, what would you say, two, three hundred yards from the clubhouse? Yes, something like that. Why, old chap? Because somebody shot Paul Blake dead. Somebody who knew he was in the cottage at the time, knew where he kept his gun. And until something else crops up, I must regard that somebody as belonging to your little drinking session. Oh, really? You sound like someone out of a detective, aunt. Have you spoken to Inspector Westford? He wasn't killed by any of us. Could have been anyone on the grounds. Mr. Fielding, we have the exact times as given to me by Inspector Westford. Now, I understand you to say that you left soon after the departure of Dr. and Mrs. Ogden that night. Yes. Well, as you know, it uh, began to rain. The armatures gave me a lift back to the cottage. According to your statement, you arrived back at your cottage at exactly half past one. Yes. Uh, you'd all been drinking rather a lot. How is it you were so sure as to the exact time of your arrival? Well, ask the arbiters. Please, Mr. Fielding, I'm asking you. Uh, because when they drop me off, I I made the expected gesture. What's that? Well, I asked them if they would like to come in for a snort, and Armitage said, no, thank you. He looked at his watch and said it was half past one, and they wanted to get home before the rain got really bad. They lived about um, four miles out, and the road is rather dicey when it rains. Isn't it? I see, thank you. One other little thing, though. In the statements made by Mr. Armitage and his wife, 
They say that they dropped you at the gate and drove off. They didn't actually see you go into the house. Uh, what does that mean, Inspector? Oh, come, come, sir. You're an intelligent man. I hear you retired from the Brigade of Guards with the rank of Major. Surely you must know the import of my question. You mean, did I run back to Paul's cottage and shoot him? No, I didn't. Besides, I can prove it. Prove it? Yes. You can ask Mrs. Thomas. Mrs. Thomas? Why don't think I've been supplied with that name? Been with the club since the flood. When she was too old to act as manageress kind of housekeeper, the club committee kept her on as... On the payroll to look after me. I see. Well, if she's that age, she'd hardly remain awake until your return. She was. Oh. Then perhaps I'd better question her. Mrs. Thomas was a diminutive, frail little lady dressed in clothes that would have been regarded as fashionable at the turn of the century. I was charmed at her appearance. Her grey hair, her blue eyes that twinkled at me over silver-rimmed spectacles, even her button-up boots that hardly reached the floor as she sat in her armchair. You, uh, you want to know about Mr. Fielding, about his alibi. Isn't that right, Chief Inspector Carr? Yes, it is. You corroborate his alibi. He says he was in this cottage when Mr. Blake was shot. Now, Mr. Blake was shot just after two o'clock. And Mr. Fielding says he was here, and indeed he was. Oh, do you always stay up late, waiting for him to return? Oh, good gracious, no. I hope you won't arrest him for it. Arrest him for what? Uh, for being, uh, uh, what is the phrase, uh, under the influence. The clatter that went on it was enough to waken the dead. Oh, dear, I shouldn't have said that under the circumstances, should I? Clatter, Mrs. Thomas. Well, I was fast asleep, and, and there was this bang. Oh, good gracious, what on earth is going on? Who's down there? Hope it isn't some wretched tramp. Mrs. Thomas? Mrs. Thomas? Oh, really, at this time of the morning. Coming! Coming! Mr. Fielding, I thought we were being robbed. What is it? I'm sorry, old girl, really, I am. I got this heartburn again. If I don't drink a glass of milk before I go to bed, I, I shall be uncomfortable all night. Really, uh, you, you know where the milk is kept, Mr. Fielding. You only have to go to the refrigerator. What? Oh, sorry, old girl. Just as I suppose I, I've had more than I should have had tonight. Uh, the fridge, you say? So you see, Inspector, his alibi is perfect. I'm sure it must have been some outsider. Constable Fulton says all those people who stayed behind at the bar drinking have all got perfect alibis. Well, Constable Fulton should learn that a good police officer refrains from gossip. Oh dear, I do hope that I haven't got the young man into trouble. Oh, no, no, no. It's common knowledge in the village. They've all got perfect alibis. There are the Armitages. What better alibi can they have? As soon as they dropped your Mr. Fielding, they came across Sergeant Simpson, who lives at Oxley. But that's six miles away. That's the next village. His motorbike had broken down. They drove him home. And what better alibi can you have than a police sergeant sitting in the back seat at the time when the shot was fired? Tell me about Mr. Fielding. He's a bachelor, isn't he? Yes. Mrs. Thomas, I believe you can read my thoughts. You, uh, you think he killed Mr. Blake? Yes, Mrs. Thomas, I do. You, you think he... Deliberately created a noise, uh, asking for the milk for his heartburn in order that I should... Oh, dear. Oh, it's all so frightening. 
Mrs. Thomas, I asked Inspector Westford to call Mr. Fielding in for questioning because the Armitage's alibi is unbreakable and Dr. Ogden supplied me with enough information to convince me that he's innocent. That's why I'm concentrating on Mr. Fielding. Why are you looking at the telephone? That has something to do with it, hasn't it? Yes, Mrs. Thomas. This must be one of the few parts of the country where they have these old-fashioned telephones with the receiver on a hook. I think that's going to play a very big part in the trial. I can't believe it. But why? Mrs. Thomas, I didn't know the circumstances of Fielding's alibi, other than the fact that you were awakened when you returned home. Now, I want to search this cottage. I can't without permission, because I haven't got a search warrant. Time is of the essence. You can either send me packing, or let me search. Well, I, I suppose if he's innocent, it can't do any harm. <laughs> And so I searched, and he wasn't innocent. There, amidst a pile of papers, I came across a cheque that was to be Exhibit A in the trial of Jack Fielding for the murder of Paul Blake. Now, this letter from Blake to you saying that you haven't kept your promise, you promised to pay £50 a month, and you haven't for two months, and he was taking this cheque to the police. What are you talking about? It was just a private business arrangement. After you shot Blake in the back of the head, you removed the forged cheque from the cottage... You were asked for a loan of fifty pounds, and you turned it into five hundred. I, I, I got heavily at the races. I, I, I couldn't keep up with the payments. I, anyway, you're here for murder, not forgery. I didn't shoot him, and you can't prove I did. Mrs. Thomas was never mind, that. Mrs. Thomas. I've had two of my top boffins. We found powder marks in the bar, Mister Fielding. There are minute drops of blood where poor Paul Blake fell when you killed him. It was a very clever, cunning plan, but it didn't come off, did it? You're coming with me, Jack Fielding, and I won't. And so he was duly cautioned and taken to the nearest prison cells. But do you know what it was that made me realize that Fielding's alibi was capable of being broken? Confirmed by Mrs. Thomas's story of being awakened? Unfortunate journalist was shot in the back of the head... And yet Dr. Ogden said that there were distinct traces of powder marks around the mouthpiece of the old-fashioned telephone. Now, the telephone exchange said they heard Fielding's voice, and him being shot at three minutes past two. How could he be shot in the back of the head, and yet there'd be powder marks on the mouthpiece of the telephone, into which he was supposed to be speaking? See it now? Fielding knew that no doctor could determine the time of death within the hour. He goes into the house, alters the clock by ten minutes, so that his housekeeper would state the time according to that clock, rushes back to the club, shoots Blake with a pistol he stole, drags him to the cottage, puts through the call, simulating Blake's voice, and fires the gun a second time next to the mouthpiece. Might have worked, too, if he hadn't fired the gun so close to the telephone as to leave the telltale marks. Cunning, but not cunning enough. The Epic Casebook was produced by Michael Silver for the makers of Epic Pure Sunflower Oil, Maple Margarine, Yum Yum Peanut Butter, and Niblet's Cheese Twists, with Hugh Russ as Inspector Carr. Listen again next Thursday night at 9.30 to another exciting story from our Epic Casebook.
That's Case Closed for this week. Don't forget to visit RelicRadio.com to find more of the series you heard today, past episodes of Case Closed, and everything else Relic Radio. All the podcasts are there, and our shoutcast stream with even more to listen to. Like to help support it all, visit donate.relicradio.com. We've got some downloadable sets for certain donation amounts, though any amount is always helpful and appreciated. Thanks again to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me this week. Be back next Wednesday with another episode of Case Closed. Thank you.